Hey fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. Today I have a guest called Mark Sanset. You might have seen him on the Real Tennis channel or Essential Tennis. Uh, he's a friend of Ian's, he plays uh, competitively there. He has some very funny outbursts that I think people like. A lot about related to fast food and uh, not being as fast on the court as he wants to. He's a software engineer. He loves tennis, a proper tennis nerd. So he reviews strings and gear on his YouTube channel. We'll put the link in the description. And so today we will talk about gear, we'll talk about tennis, which we both love, and, and some other stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonas. Uh, I don't know if your audience has noticed your hairline. It's It shocked me when we first got on call. So looking, uh, looking, I would say, about 7 to 10 years younger, in my opinion. I don't know what other age range people give you, but looking looking much younger and much more fresh. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You should always start the podcast with a compliment. I think that always helps. Always, always. Uh, especially with the Joe Rogan podcast. That uh, That's like the only podcast I listen to other than some random tennis ones. But yeah, always start with a compliment, but don't be creepy. So I could have been creepy, but I won't, I won't be. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. So we talked about before we jumped on this, like how much we both enjoy being on the tennis court because we're yep. not forced to, you know, by Correct. profession or by anything. And, and you have this, I mean, you're competing on like, is it 4.5, 5.0 level NTRP? Uh, yeah, I, I get a year and a half ago, I got bumped up from 4.5 to 5.0. So 5.0, I would say, is like uh, lower level division one for men's or high level division like two or division three. So it's 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 pretty elite, but it's uh, it's like I would say two steps away from semi-pro. So got some work to do. But yeah, it's not it's it's very uh it's not easy to get to. It takes a lot of training and uh, also a lot of dedication, a lot of resources, especially time to be on the court, working on stuff, and then traveling for tennis tournaments against players that are slightly tougher than you to see what the other competition is like. Where are you based in the States? Uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So uh, Milwaukee, if you guys aren't familiar with the U.S. Uh, major cities, it's about 90 minutes to two hours north of Chicago. All right. Yeah. So it's pretty cold there. So it's not like super tennis friendly always. Or... Um, it's not as tennis friendly as something like maybe Texas or Florida as a state. I'm sure that's more familiar than Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, but the outdoor tennis season, and thankfully we have a really, really good uh tennis uh, public tennis system for uh for like you know public tennis courts that can be used when the high school users aren't use or high school players aren't using it. I believe uh I would say maybe mid to early april through mid to late october so april so that's what like uh around seven seven and a half months you could play outside uh obviously if it's not raining or you know thunderstorming so it gets tough around november through uh through march is where we start to struggle for indoor tennis courts and you know not a lot of people could afford it but thankfully being a software engineer uh money's good right now so um i just spend a lot of time at the local tennis club in the local gym. So how much um, do you play? Like, do you try to play like every day or, you know, four or five times a week? So before I got my puppy um, in July, uh, I was playing both indoors and outdoor season. I was playing about 10 times a week. So I did have some double headers in terms of like training or match play. Um, and obviously I had to take some time off because the puppy, you know, it needed to be trained really well. And now I am playing about four to five times a week, which is still pretty frequent. But then again, that's my passion. So, uh, it, it, if you want to break down hours during the summer, I'm on the court training or hitting about 15 hours a week, uh, across those 10 tennis sessions. So it's, it's pretty intense. Um, and right now during outdoor tennis season, but um, I have a constraint of having a four-legged fur baby 
Um, I'm on the court about seven to ten hours competitively, so still pretty good, but not as much as uh, I, I I was used to, which is fine. How does your body hold up with all that tennis? And congrats, by the way, on the. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, for me, because I'm I'm a smaller. I mean, I'm I'm pretty stocky, but I'm not like six foot six. Uh, I've started to realize that people that are you know very tall around six foot three or whatever metric conversion you guys have. So the taller individuals, they start not to only have knee problems but lower back problems. Um, thankfully, I've stayed away from that. Uh, other than rolling an ankle, I've been pretty injury free. But I can definitely feel that um, it's my knees, the cartilage in my knees. Um, I'm starting to feel it <laughs> every now and then. But other than that, really no major injuries. Um, I get sore uh, faster than I should, but I think that's normal given I'm 33 years old now. But again, no major injuries, nothing lingering. I just got to stretch more often because of my knees. But other than that, I've been pretty thankful, pretty lucky. Uh, I'm pretty thankful that uh, nothing tragic has happened, at least not yet. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. Also, I mean, it's tougher to be tall. I've realized that as well. And for yeah. me, it's been like I used to play on concrete courts. I mean, you guess you play on hard courts mainly, but I used to play on concrete when I lived in Malta. And now in Spain, I play on clay. And I have oh, my... you are on you are in Spain. Okay, I'm in Spain. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were Malta. Okay, so that's why we were talking about you playing some. Uh, was it ITF or some futures? Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, yeah, not futures. Like it's ITF seniors. Uh, Third, you need to be thirty plus, and you yep. can play like categories, right? Yeah, um, but so it, I can do that now. <laughs> yeah, you can do that for sure, you know, and, and they have tournaments in the States. Um, so that it's a great, I mean, some of these events, the problem is like, if you go lower category, like there's category from MT, you know, 100, they're called MT, some masters to work, yeah. whatever, 100 up to 1000, right? So 1000 is the toughest, 100 is the easiest. And like the 100, 200, which are pretty common events, they sometimes there's not enough players like they some some guys drop all out or and you don't have enough matches so you don't that's a bit of a problem but the 400 700 up to 1000 that's really good competition right i did some research because the, the issue with um the issue with the uh the states as an adult tennis player someone that's post college let's say 23 years old and older and you know i i want to be competitive um there's not a lot of events held by uh USTA the United States Tennis Association so typically what I find myself doing is I hit with people my age uh, and I think on a regular basis, there's only one person in my friend group that could beat me in singles. And, you know, that's that's the reality of it, because the better ones just, you know, they're 50 pounds overweight or they're not playing as much as I am. And that's OK. But I find myself hitting with a lot of uh, really, really good high schoolers or even current college division three players and that's the only way i could get like you know that adrenaline that rush that fear of even losing on the tennis court so i mean the only adult tennis tournament i've done and you know this is an issue with with the U midwest us is that i had to travel uh five and a half hours to indianapolis uh to play an adult usta tennis tournament and unfortunately i know it's weird for me saying this unfortunately i won that which is good but Typically speaking, I don't want to win every single tennis tournament I, I, I enter. I want to get to, like, you know, the, the third round or the semifinals and then lose because, you know, it's I, I need that reality check of, like, hey, it is possible for me as an adult player to lose against other adult tennis players my age. So the ITF futures that Europe is doing really, really well, um, that that's probably my next option. Unfortunately, in the U.S., there's only, like, maybe five events a year. Uh, in, yeah. in the continental U.S. It's definitely more of a, a European thing, which is uh, something that Europe as a culture and geographically has embraced really well when it comes to uh, tennis players, specifically adults. It's a lifestyle for you guys. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it could be a, a change there. It's like kind of a divide from the college un junior years to you going up and then you're in the 30s. And then like, it's very tough to find equal up position. At least if you're like, if you're really passionate about your tennis, you want to improve and you want to play high, high level for your age. It, it, then, you, I mean, the, the number of players you can play, they are dwindling, right? So it's oh, like, yeah. people it's, it's a trap. Yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, I mean, again, it, it, it is, I think, personally, a culture thing, because if you think about the biggest sports in the States, it's uh, American football, um, Major League Baseball, and you guys don't even play baseball in Europe. Um, like soccer slash football is like a, not even in the top 10 here, I think. We have yeah. hockey, and that's not a European thing unless you're in, you know, you're in a Nordic or Scandinavian country. So, yeah, I mean, tennis is what the third biggest sport in Europe uh, in terms Probably, of. Yeah, I would say maybe football and then maybe rugby or cricket and maybe basketball might be in there. But tennis is definitely top five, which is <laughs> I, I eventually want to move to Europe. That'd be pretty that'd be pretty cool or at least frequent quite often because the time the times I've been to Europe were just an absolute blast. <laughs> So, yeah, ITF circuit might be a thing for me for 30 plus or 35 plus, depending on the year. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's good. I, I tend to recommend people to actually try them because the more players you have, the better. And, and I mean, I, I understand completely what you mean. Like if you join, you don't want to win. You want to be pushed, right? So yep. if you at least you want to have a really tough matches and you win, you can feel satisfied. Yeah. But if you win comfortably, it feels like something is wrong where you just enter the tournament you shouldn't have entered. Or, you know, it's like a yeah. feeling, right? Don't get me wrong. You don't want to be blown out like 6-0-6-1 in the first round. That's, that's no fun either. But the idea that with certain exceptions of like, hey, maybe you did play really well against a player that is around your level and you beat them like 6-2-6-3 and never got broken. Okay, that's an exception. But like, if you're like just going through the routine and you're, you know, destroying people 6-1-6-0 in the first two rounds you're right it's like why am i even testing myself and then you win six two six three in the final like okay that's it like come on bring it <laughs> yeah yeah and you seem to be a guy who likes to to fight like a bit like andy murray you want to have like these oh. tight matches where you have to yeah. grind a bit you know yeah i i like there is a recent tennis match um that actually isn't published yet but um yeah i just never gave up even if everything was going wrong I'm going to do everything. I'm going to slice. I'm going to dink. I'm going to serve in Bali. I'm just going to scream and claw my way out um, to the best of my ability and see if I can pull out the W, even if things are lo not looking my way. Yeah, I think that's the way you have to do it. Like, I mean, the, the mental game of tennis is one of the most important things, you know, especially I think if you want to improve, you know, small levels, like we talk NTRP or whether it's UTR, but if you want to go from 5.0 to 5.5, a lot yep. of it is mental, right? Like a lot of yep. it's like you know, being able to win matches. You shouldn't, you have no business win, winning, I think, right? Yeah, especially, uh, and I, I don't think a lot of people can relate to this. Um, obviously, if you have swing vision or if you're recording yourself on camera, okay, you get to see what you, you look like, even if it's, you know, a competitive, you know, a competitive tennis match that actually matters. But um, for, for people that have played on like a production quality thing, kind of like with essential tennis or real tennis, it certainly adds extra pressure, even on the simple things like calling a ball out that's like half a meter out. You're going to be a little bit more scared or more hesitant to call it out because there's three cameras on you and up to 50,000 people are viewing that tennis match. And there's going to be people in the comment section. But take it a step further. When it matters, when you're down break point, can you pull that trigger? Can you pull that forehand down the line on an open court and not decelerate and, you know, not have that fear of losing that game so that that type of mentality of like 
being mentally sharp and mentally tough to pull something uh to misdirect something on an aggressive or an important point that type of mentality is like what separates like a good 5-0 in my opinion versus a good 5-5 i would say 75 percent of the time it's a lot of it is 100 mental and uh, a good amount of it is also preparation like being match match tough match fitness wise and match mentality wise match tough and ready to go yeah, I feel like the more matches you play, the more of a kind of a muscle memory you build up in match situations. So if you're if you're off the match circuit, yeah, you're not playing like I mean, I'm not meaning training matches. I mean tournament matches. Yep. If if you're playing regular tournament matches, you're getting up that kind of muscle of like, okay, in this situation, I need to go to this kind of you know resort in my head or in, you know physically, or you have kind of that built up. But if you're pretty cold, like there's been four months, one year, three years since you played a tournament match it feels like you're a beginner again, right? Like, it's like, yeah. it's really stark, you know, that contrast. It really is a muscle. Uh, that, that's a perfect way of putting it, right? Because like, if, if you, you know, if you lift every single day, you know, if you're going through the body workout, body circuit, you're going to gain muscle. And if you keep up with that, even on a somewhat regular basis, like maybe not lift every single day, maybe lift three times a week, something somewhat regular, you're still going to have that strength. You're still going to have that muscle and you're, you're still, you can still show it off. But take into effect um, muscle atrophy if you don't, you know, if you don't eat right, or if you don't work out for, you know, three months straight, yeah, you're going to lose that muscle fairly quickly. And then you got to build it up again before it becomes a more regular thing. Do you have like a, a goal for your game? I mean, like you playing on the real tennis looks like a lot of fun. Obviously, it's not like a circuit, but it's like it yeah. adds extra spice, you know. It's it's not a circuit, but it still matters. And depending on your view of like what it feels like to play uh, in front of, you know, three or four cameras what it feels like to play a tennis match is going to be viewed by tens of thousands of people that actually care about amateur tennis. Um, I would say it can actually have more pressure, I guess. Obviously, there's not really much traveling, especially because the club is seven minutes away from me. Um, traveling does add to uh, adds to the pressure. But for me, I, I think it does have some extra spice. Um, and for, for my goal... I have revenge stories, I guess. Like, I lost to uh, Cole. I lost to Michael. I have a few other losses out there that I'm not going to discuss because it's not published yet. But um, those are my, I guess, my minor goals, like, is to beat, uh, is to go headhunting and beat certain types of people. Um, but eventually, um, and this is going to take a lot more planning, I have been looking at the ITF circuit possibility for the past uh, for the past 18 months. So um, I at least want to try that, uh, preferably in Spain, just because I like red clay the best, believe it or not, as an American. But um, I want to see what my first few tournaments are going to be like, and then I could set a more concrete goal from there to be like, you know, ranked top 10 in my division or, or, or whatever. So I just don't know what, the, what that specific goal is quite yet in terms of the ITF senior circuit. Yeah, but you, you seem to have a, a strong dedication and also like inspiration to, to keep improving. How do you handle, like, if, if you have a tough loss, whether it's real tennis or something oh. else, you know, how do you handle that? Uh, I go home and drink a bottle of vodka. <laughs> uh, I'm joking. I don't drink a bottle of vodka. It's it's whiskey, believe it or not. But it's, um, I actually like losing because it's a reality check. Uh, and, and that is, that's kind of, uh, that's because, that's formulated because there's only one person that could beat me. Uh, in my circle of friends that's around my age. And I, I really like playing him because I, I like the thrill. I like the possibility of losing. It really gets me going. But if I lose against someone that I believe I shouldn't have, uh, especially if it's a bad scoreline, that 
motivates me even more to fix the things that I messed up on to improve the stuff that I already do pretty well. Because next time I play him, the mentality of me, at least internally, that um, you guys could probably see it a little bit, is that I'm not only going to beat this guy. I'm just going to embarrass him in terms of scoreline because I, I'm like, I, I get mad. But I take it out in the correct way of improving. It's not like I want to walk away from tennis. That's That's not... One, I don't think that's the right attitude because you're always going to have bad losses, just like you're always going to have good wins. But also the losses motivate me to train harder, to work out harder, to eat better, and just to be a little bit more angry and a little bit have a, have a bigger fire in my gut, in my heart, to be able to walk out next time I play that guy and just absolutely embarrass him. Yeah, that's a, it's a strong feeling to have. When you talked about eating well, and often <laughs> in your videos, you mentioned some fast food that yeah. fucked you up, to say the least. <laughs> Is, is that is that real or is it more so, like a funny thing to... to so so it was real, right? So I think when I uh, appeared on Essential Tennis, um, wow, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? That was right, right at the height of the pandemic. So let's say summer of... Summer of 2020. Yeah, that was three and a half years ago. Um, I was... I just turned 30 years old, so my metabolism was still really good. And I was still teaching a lot of tennis outside um, because the public, most public courts were available during the pandemic. Um, obviously, I'm not going to get too much into that because, you know, every, every country's politics is different. But I was eating a lot of fast food because I could get away with it. I was still young. I was still healthy. But I think right around when I was 31 and a half or 32, my metabolism greatly slowed down. So, like, now I'm eating a lot better. But back when it was uh, – back when I was a fresh face on uh, essential tennis – yeah, that actually was 100% true. McDonald's, Taco Bell, uh, Kidoba, if you have heard of it, which is uh, kind of like Chipotle. Um, a lot of fast food junk, but um, I'm eating a lot better now. <laughs> so that, that actually was true when it first started. Yeah, and it's uh, and it, that food is a huge thing. I mean, for me, sleep is, is one of the most important, especially like for playing a tennis match the next day. But yep. But also, like, if you eat pretty bad or too close to the match, it can really take, like, a whole set before you're even feeling normal again, right? Or if that, like, if, if you overeat, um, you might be screwed the, the entire singles match. Doubles really, it, it's not it's not the same. Uh, but undereating is also a big factor as well. Uh, so, you know, always have one or two bananas with you during the match in case you undereat. A bar of chocolate uh, or two if you guys, you know, want that boost of uh, energy via, via sugar, which is... Uh, which is a simple carb. I forget what it was, but, um, but also for, for me, sleeping is not really not big of an issue because unless I'm traveling for a tennis tournament, uh, I typically work during the work day. So if I'm sleep deprived or if I'm feeling tired, I'll just take like anywhere between a 30 minute to a 45 minute nap. And that typically fixes everything. And I'll, I have energy that lasts me throughout the tennis, uh, through the entire tennis match. So sleep isn't really that big of an issue for me unless I'm traveling for a tennis tournament. Yeah, yeah, it's, it depends a little bit on, like, I'm not a good napper, but it's, like, resting a bit is, is usually good, but some, some people can nap, like, just oh, by a quick of thumb, you know? I, I can fall asleep at any time. Oh, that's perfect. I love that, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know it's biological, too, right? So it, it's not inherent in everybody, unfortunately. But naps are, fan naps are such a, it's such a good feeling of just that, that small REM cycle of, like, anywhere between 15 minutes to maybe an hour. You wake up, and you're good to go. You're not drowsy. Obviously, if you nap for two hours, that might be a bit of an issue, but a nice one hour nap or less, it's fantastic.
Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen that. I've seen it up close. Um, when it comes to your tennis background, like when did you start? You were an early starter. You you quit during some point, or or how does your tennis life look? Like? Uh, I started. Well, I picked up a racket in kindergarten, and my parents were like, "Yeah, that's probably not for you." And then I uh, so that was like maybe like two weeks, and I don't even remember that. Um, but I started playing tennis again around third grade. So in the states, that's anywhere between eight to nine years old if you're in third grade. Um, and they found out, even though I was very small and I was very chubby, believe it or not, um, and then I lost the chubbiness because I was playing a lot of tennis. Um, I was actually really talented to the point where I had a Midwest ranking um, for my age group, and I almost had a national ranking just because I was quick. Uh, back then, I had a big forehand for my size. I knew how to hit topspin. I knew how to hit a slice, uh, a slice slash side spin serve, which is apparently huge if you're in, uh, if you're under ten years old. Um, and I had pretty good hand-eye coordination, um, but uh, I didn't have the mental game. So that Midwest and national ranking kind of dropped off around uh, 12 to like 14, especially when these uh, these kids start to hit puberty. Um, and I was late bloomer too. Um, I was very, very undersized up until I was a junior in high school. So, you know, I, 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 I would say, yeah, I was an underachiever. Um, and part of that, most of that is because I didn't know how to construct the tennis point. I just knew how to hit a big forehand. I knew how to keep keep my two handed backhand back then um, inside the court. But as soon as people started having cross court rally patterns at fourteen and under, I was screwed. So uh, yeah, I, I guess I was an underachiever. Uh, and then I played Division three college for University of Wisconsin Whitewater. Um, I played on the t on the team for two years, uh, and then I got cut my junior year because they had strong recruits, and uh, I was at the bottom of the bottom of the roster, which is fine. I, I I still appreciate the stuff that they did for me, and I still keep in good touch with them. Um, but I, I didn't get good at tennis again until I was 24. Uh, and that's because, you know, I'm an adult. Uh, I have a nine to five now. I have a career. I have my degree. Okay, what what else am I going to do with my life other than, you know, just be a good employee and provide the company with value and money? I got to have passions outside. So that's where tennis stepped in. I'm like, oh, okay, this is how you construct a tennis point. Um, this is, you know, the mentality of what it's like to actually win as uh, not only a competitor, but as an adult. So, yeah, I, I personally did not get better until I was 24, 25, which is uh, not not exactly normal, but um, I wouldn't have it any other way, to be honest. I think sometimes, like, getting back to tennis, like what what, what I did as well, and, and after, you know, quitting as a kid or, or just, you know, not losing, you know, losing a little bit of that passion and doing other things, I think it get, gets, you know, you even more, you know, it gives you even more passion, yep. right? So you, you feel stronger about the sport. Well, as we talked about before we jumped on the recording mode, is that if you've been coaching your whole life or if you've been playing pro, it didn't really work out, and then you go into coaching, it's not really your choice to go into coaching a lot of the time. It's kind of like a necessity because maybe you don't have another, you know, job waiting for you or yep. you don't have education or something. So that is kind of reluctant work. And mm -hmm. there you can really lose your passion. While I feel like if you're a bit later to the game, whether it's, you know, you started early or you just started late, it feels like it's so much more fun to play tennis. Like it's always it fun. It is. A, a lot of it too. I've been thinking about this for like the past, like actually like seven years. Like when did I, not only when did I get good, but why did I get good? A lot of it is actually maturity. And, uh, you know, look at any, uh, scientific study when it comes to the hormones and the brains of the human body, men mature much later in life, both physically and also mentally um, compared to women. Um, so the idea that, okay, I'm more quote unquote mature because I still have some, you know, childish tendencies, which is I fully embrace, but the idea that I have a self-responsibility and I understand that if I win a tennis match in singles as an adult, it's all me. 
I can't blame my coach. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame the wind. I can't blame the weather. I can't blame the strings, the racket, anything. It's me. That's why I love singles so much in tennis, not only the sport, but like specifically singles, because everything that you do in the tennis, the result of that singles tennis match, you cannot blame anyone else because your opponent is also under the same limelight and is playing under the exact same conditions. You can't blame your coach. You can only blame yourself both in winning the match or losing the match, or maybe even somewhere in between of like how you perform, but it's all you, it's all the individual. It's the purest in my opinion. And I'd be more than happy to, to debate anybody about this, but singles tennis match is the purest form of sport out there more so than basketball because basketball is a team sport and there's a coach there more so than football because it's a team sport. It's a solo sport. It's, it's an absolute beautiful thing. And there's a reason why I really, really like working with former athletes in terms of, you know, even in the corporate world, because they understand the responsibility and the training and the, and the discipline of getting the job done. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, you can compare it in many ways to like martial arts, I think, like, you know, because it's like, it's like UFC, but you're on a court with a ball, right? So it's like, exactly. you're, you're alone. There's another guy who wants to beat you. You need to beat him, but you also need, I think Novak said this uh, best. I talked to Nikola Racic last uh, week and, and it's like, he mentioned that, you know, it's about defeating yourself. Like Novak said that so much. He's, he's, he's fighting himself on the court, you know, and that's why he's so strong mentally. He has found a way to, you know, really visualize that fight against himself and try to be the best version of himself that he can muster that day. But, you know, it's, it's a lot about that, like being there and, and be bringing your best game, whatever it is that day, right? Yeah. And, and what's nice is, like, um, you break down a singles tennis match into its simplest form. And I always tell my students this. Um, I always tell my students this at one point in time, whether they've had one lesson with me or if they've had, you know, 10. And I still teach tennis on the side, you know, these really talented high schoolers. And I just, I, I mainly just hit with them. But as us, give, I still give them pointers. In, in a singles tennis match, there's three opponents. There's yourself, because you have to in some way conquer yourself philosophically in order to face your other opponent who's across the net, the actual opponent themselves. And then you have the other variables like the net and the line. But the most important opponent you have to overcome is that first one. You have to overcome stuff that you do you have to have the discipline to you know grab you know not grab. you have to you have to have the discipline to get one more ball back you have to have the discipline of you know being patient of hitting a ball cross court rather than slapping it down the line you have to be able to say no to your internal tendencies or wants before you can even face the person across the net so in a way yes you know your your biggest opponent is yourself it's not the person across the tennis net how do you deal with like when you're playing competitive? Like if do you have because I mean tennis is a fun, th a weird thing you could say. Like most matches you call your own lines, right? I mean this is rarely you yes. have like an umpire, right? So yeah, it's one of those things that can trip people like and make them mentally unstable. And it's one of those things that you know also shows a little bit of gentlemanship. You know, some people cheat on purpose. Most people do not. You know, but we, like, I mean, we can, so like uh, uh, let's see, out of the. Out of, I would say, 10 matches that I've been featured in on Essential Tennis and Real Tennis, um, I made one, just one bad line call in favor of myself. Obviously, I didn't mean to do it, but I still felt really bad. The overwhelming majority of my incorrect line calls is giving the benefit of the doubt uh, to the opponent. You know, calling a ball in when it was actually out because it was out by like an inch and a half 
it was a fast first serve. But the idea that a majority of tennis matches, a majority of competitive tennis matches uh, is called by the actual competitors themselves um, really, really brings out the fact that you can see and I would argue judge the person that you're facing against based on their line calls and also their attitude. So it, it is very different. There's no line judges for 99.9% .9 of these tennis matches, um, no matter how competitive they are. But it is very special that there's no referee, there's no umpire like there is in MMA or boxing or, you know, football or any major sport in Europe and the States uh, for these uh, the, these athletes, the, these tennis players to call their own lines. So it, it is, and to be honest, I really can't tell how com how much different it is because tennis is the by far the only sport I've played anywhere near the level I'm at right now. I've never really played basketball. I've never really played soccer. For me, it's it's always been tennis. Yeah, no, it's it's an old thing, but it's like I I also agree that it shows something about your opponent. Like I mean, I, I can sometimes lose respect. I don't argue calls, and I I always try to be as fair as I can. I mean, sometimes obviously you can have a visual problem where you don't see the ball properly and you judge it in or out based on that, you know? Correct. But even whether or not it's intentional, in my opinion, and this is a, you know, a hot topic debate, that's still, uh, that's still hooking or that's, that's still cheating in my opinion, because you always got to get, but there is some nuance to that. And that's, that's a very, very large gray area in my opinion, but that that's going to be another two hour podcast if we go down yeah. that rabbit hole. <laughs> no, but it's interesting because like, I, I, you know, you always try to be the fairest you can be. And it's, for me, it doesn't matter that much if I lose or win. Like, it's not like, you know, it's not prize money. For example, in the ITF seniors events, it's not prize money. But you can have opponents that's going to argue, I would say, 10% of the, of the points. Like, they're going to argue a lot of calls, even things that are pretty much, you know, out. Or, even, on, or... even on clay, like, if you if you get a, and I, obviously, I, I haven't done the, these tournaments yet, and I hope to uh, in 2024, this next year. But, like, even if it's, let's assume clay, right? Because that's yeah. a majority of these uh, tennis tournaments are being played at. Even if you show them the ball mark that's, like, literally this far out from the line, they'll still argue it? Yeah, well, the, there's some skepticism towards the, because it could be, like, a question, if there's two marks close, for example, that's where it can happen. You know, it's okay. like, oh, was this mark? It wasn't that mark. Uh, that's happened to me, for example, when I call the ball out. That I was pretty—I mean, I'm pretty sure. If I'm not sure, I'm—it's I'm, in, right? So yeah. But, yeah. yeah has so. anybody? Has any of your opponents during one of these tennis matches uh, in, in this ITF senior? Have they ever like? Uh, ha have you ever showed them the mark and they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, you're right." Did they ever like? No, no, no. that never happened. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, never happened. Right. Even if you think that that e even if your call is very very clear and the person they they just keep going with it they do, they never apologize yeah, i think the people usually that question it they they like are their mindset is that they're very stubborn on, on that they're right right so it depends a little bit like for example i played an open tournament last you know two weeks ago and that was like all the matches were great like everybody's super fair there was not one question on any line call right it's like yeah. that's the perfect tournament yeah so it's not it, it's it happens it depends some people are a bit trickier than others when it comes to you know like judging or, or feeling like they're more negative in general. I, I've seen sure, that sure. from some guys. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty negative guy in case you haven't noticed, especially with my outbursts. But I, and th this, this also bleeds into my corporate life as a software engineer, right? I am always, always, always open to the possibility of me being wrong. In fact, I'm wrong every day at work. Like, it, okay, like w what's wrong with this program? Why is this program breaking? So that, I guess, based on what you're telling me, that I'm one of the very few instances of like, you know, a high level tennis player that's not exactly stubborn. Um, because like as as much as I want to win, I will never, ever, ever 
uh, purposely or intentionally uh, put my character at jeopardy in an, in an honest fashion just for like, you know, a thousand dollar prize money or for just for just an important tennis match. I would never do that because that's my, my character. I wouldn't say a reputation because reputation with the Internet, anything can happen now if you can bad talk anybody. But that's not worth my character that that tennis match, that prize money. It's not worth it. So that's that's a shame that people would do that. <laughs> but, it, yeah, I would say yeah. it's it's relatively rare, but it, it it's happened. And sometimes, like I I've you know because I started playing these like last year, and I I was a little bit shocked a few times where it's like, oh, you you want to win this badly, right? Like I'm yeah. a bit like, wow, you know, this is a exaggerated reaction to this, and and I'm like, I mean, this is the same for me. I'm this you know integrity and and being authentic and being honest is number one for me. So I yeah. don't care what what happens in a tennis match, right? So. I, I think integrity is a better word because like when it comes, comes to character, like people, there are some people out there, I would say in, in the comment section, you know, about 5% of the people don't like my outbursts, but you, you cannot fault that overwhelming majority of the time I make the correct line call or I would even give my opponent a line call. But when it comes to my outbursts or yelling, Okay, that's a gray area, right? That's that's behavior. But when it comes to like the actual integrity of, you know, calling your own lines, it's very you have to dig really really deep into the archives of my video footage of me purposely or me making a bad line call that favors me. And again, there's only one out there and that was against uh the guy that is the only one that is able to consistently beat me around my age and he, he's he's a hell of a guy too. He's he's also improved a lot. His name's Joey, by the way. Um, super nice guy, and he's the one that's always been kicking my ass <laughs> at this day and age. Which I'm happy to see him, you know, do that. But I, I've got some work to do to, you know, get the upper hand against him in the near future. Um, yeah, that's so, good, so integrity is probably the better word for that. So, yeah, I mean, and that's probably shocking. I wouldn't say that's shocking in juniors because you're not mentally, uh, you're not mentally mature. You, you don't understand what it's like. Uh, and I'm assuming as a junior too, you have that small possibility of hey. I could become a tennis pro if I win these many matches or if I win this tournament or if I get these these points. But like, you know, are you in your 40s? I'm in my I'm 33. Early, yeah. early, early 40s. Yeah. So, yeah. So us, you know, you know, 30 plus and, you know, still in really good shape. We're not delusional. We, we want to be the best tennis player that we can be. But if you think that we're going to be appearing in the second round of a grand slam. No, that's. That's crazy. But th these kids still have that possibility. Yeah. They, they, they don't have that realization. They don't understand what it's like <laughs> to face off against, uh, you know, people that have been training this all their life. So, yeah, th that's a shame that happens. But, um, yeah, it's probably an age thing that you're, you're probably a little shocked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, 100%. Because I, I played Opens in Malta and, and uh, in Spain as well, right? Where you play maybe someone who's 15 years old or 16 years old, like a good player, but... Usually they have a bit of a temperament because tennis is a, you know, psychotic sport sometimes, you know, we all oh, yeah. that. Very. like the stress of tennis is, is high. And when you're, when you're a young kid, you know, you know yourself, it's like, it, you feel losses are huge. Like it's a huge, it ruins your whole day, maybe week. I don't know. Like it's a bigger thing than it's, if, if you're an adult, you have other things to focus on, you know, like yep. in, in the whole, you know, uh, you know, life as such, it doesn't matter much, right? And you mm -hmm. will be stronger. But as a kid, you don't think about that. So you have to give them a little bit more leeway to to misbehave or, or to do some old calls or whatever. I think that's more normal, right, when you're younger. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just because you, you don't know how to handle uh, loss or defeat. Like, you know, 
in the grand scheme of things, okay, let's say as a 15-year-old, you you lose, um, you're the number one seed, but you lose in the second round to someone that's not seeded. You know, a temper tantrum is not, I mean, I wouldn't say it's acceptable, but it, it's kind of expected, I guess, unless you have a very, very mature kid. But if you take that same scenario and put it to, uh, let's say, a 29-year-old, okay, a tennis match or a tennis tournament loss of an upset, that's not as bad as, let's say, something very tragic like, you know, your mom or your dad or a loved one, like, dying or being hospitalized. There's other things to worry about. Yeah, it sucks. But in the grand scheme of things, as you said, it's not even close to what tragedies you encounter in real life. 100%. And um, you do film a little match play on your um, on your channel now, and uh, you do, did reviews before we get into that, but... What, did you do you notice like your improvement from filming, like from recording your own uh, sessions, right? Yeah. So th this is one of the philosophies that Ian uh, told me about as not I wouldn't say necessarily a tennis coach, but just as a tennis player that's looking to improve, no matter what level you are. The idea of you, the i the image of you hitting a ball in the stream of consciousness of your first person is very very different than what is objectively happening through a camera lens so your best tennis coach in terms of like who's ready available who who knows what to do you know what strokes you're you're messing up on is actually yourself because with the wealth of the internet now with all these massive major tennis channels of like oh this is how you hit a forehand properly and they're all almost all of them are correct i would say but everybody has a phone now there's no there's nothing stopping you from buying a 15 tripod and video recording yourself even just hitting a ground stroke it doesn't even have to be a tennis match a tennis match i would argue is you know kind of the next step but you you have to view yourself like in reality of like what you actually look like when hitting a ground stroke or when you know playing out a, a ground stroke point or you know playing a tennis match that actually matters because i guarantee you anybody that's listening to this and i'm i'm part of this too the image that you have of you playing a tennis match or hitting a, a particular stroke versus what is actually happening is 100% incorrect. It's very, very rarely anywhere close. So I, I would argue that anybody that's listening to this that hasn't done so already, buy a crappy tripod that has a good angle and then just video yourself just even hitting a forehand or a backhand and see how massive the difference is between what you think you look like and what, what, the, what the camera is actually showing you on your phone playback. Yeah, I think it's 100% true. I, I've, I've seen that when I play with people. Some people just, they know you from the channel. They come to Spain or maybe Malta before and they, they want to play you partly because they, maybe they want to be a part of the channel. I've, I've yeah, and well. there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's, no. it's nice. It's, it's nice that, oh, I get to see myself not only on screen, but other people can see that I'm on the YouTube channel Tennis Nerd just hitting or even playing a set or a tiebreak. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun thing and I, I enjoy it, but... I, some of them are almost like shocked when you mm -hmm. and they, they see the footage or I send them the footage or they like, oh, because they, they weren't used to, you know, they're not used to recording themselves. So they're like, yeah, oh, is it that, that's how it looks. I, I yeah. thought it was like Roger. I'm like, you no. know, it's for everyone, right? <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, I mean, Roger Federer. And th this is the thing that I, I've taught all of my students that are either in college or high school. You don't want to. You never want to, in my opinion, you never want to model your forehand after Roger Federer because he keep in mind he grew up in a time that was you know kind of like serving Bali and he just did a really good job transitioning that into like the power baseline tennis you know the Andy Roddick Leighton Hewitt yeah. Marat Safin was probably the generational one that bridged the gap along with Roger Federer but um I would and I'm not really a big Novak fan but I think he is the greatest tennis player of all time because he has the most singles grand slams as a male 
Um, I think Novak Djokovic's uh, technique is much more accommodating for 99.9% of the people versus something like a Roger Federer or a Grigor Dimitrov or even, I would argue, Rafa Nadal. Nadal's technique is pretty extreme for most mere mortals like like you and I. Um, but one thing I want to talk about is uh, not only the technique, but also the pace. Because if you're recording yourself from a top-down angle, it's very hard to describe how heavy the ball is until you're literally across the net. So people always comment that like, oh, it doesn't look that big on camera. And I'm talking about tennis, not, not nothing phallic. But um, if they're facing me across the net, they always comment most of the time that they were surprised how heavy my ball is compared to what is on camera. I don't know if you've had any experience with that with people that have never recorded themselves playing a tennis match. But I'm assuming they say the same thing, right? Because you hit a pretty, you hit a pretty heavy ball, right? Yeah, I can hit a heavy ball. It depends on the racket sometimes, but yeah. no. But it's like, for example, um, yeah, it's hard. You can't read too much. I think people watch pro level tennis and they make a lot of judgments based on like, you know, watching it from bird's eye view, which is yep. very bad for for seeing the pace. But they can also judge YouTubers like myself yeah. or you or or Ian or whoever, right? So, and they everybody, everybody likes to judge these days. But it's it's very different and saying something from like a keyboard and actually going, okay, I'm gonna try to play this guy or yeah. please see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the keyboard warriors are uh, they always get me. Um I don't think from essential tennis or real tennis, any type of negative commentators, and you you guys can negatively comment all you want, but like they've never backed it up. Ian has extended an invite from some of these negative commenters on some of these videos saying hey play play ian westerman and he's not the highest level player on that channel not not by long bit and part of it is because of his shoulder but he he's he's offered some of these uh these naysayers in the comment section to fly them to milwaukee wisconsin play a tennis match and if they win he pay ian pays for everything and none of them none of them have ever uh have ever taken that offer so uh, a lot of them are just scared chickenless. So they feel high and mighty because they're behind a computer screen. But when it comes to like putting your money where your mouth is, which I I always do, they've they've never stepped up. No, and it's it's I think it's like they don't realize also how intimidating I mean, just the the idea of that is like, okay, I, I write something mean, which is why are you doing that? That's just stupid, right? Well, yeah, why don't yeah. you keep it to yourself or write something constructive, right? That's my opinion in life in general. But if you want to do that, you have a bad day, you want to write something shitty. And okay, then then you have to then like let's say travel to Milwaukee and and put your money where the mouth where your mouth is. And it's like in front of cameras, in front of mm -hmm. people who are like already like, oh, okay, maybe they don't like this guy because he already commented something shitty, you know? <laughs> And you're, you're and you're playing against a guy who now wants to beat you, whether it's you or Ian or anyone else. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it's like they should think about that before they say something. That's oh yeah, one hundred percent. Have to get to that situation where yeah. like, oh, you want to come? You know, hey, here's yeah. you know tickets and we're, we're set it up, right? Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, scared. Um, and a lot a lot of that is uh maturity in terms of like, I wouldn't even say maturity. I, I think ignorance is a better word because some of these players like. For for example, Olive TV. Um, she she played on real tennis, and she had close matches, but she never won. But she hits a heavy, heavy, heavy ball. Um, it, it's it's pretty, it's pretty insane. Um, but like, I, I made the offer that if she beats me, I will pay for her flight home, which I believe was around or round trip flight home, which is around like eight hundred to a thousand dollars. 
but that, that was fun for me, right? Because like, I, I think I beat her like 6-3, 6-3 or something like that. But it was fun because like, it's probably one of the best rushes I've ever gotten as a tennis player because there's something on the line, not only in terms of camera or pride or, you know, your status as a tennis player, but if I lose, I lose something. <laughs> so um, I, I guess I'm one of the very few people that like would actually back that up. But then again, it's because, you know, I live a semi-public life in terms of, you know, being in the tennis industry. But any negative commenter in the section uh, of whether it's, you know, Dill Plays or Winston Do or Tennis Nerd or Essential Tennis Real Tennis, I'd be more than happy to um, kind of take them off, take them on in any type of challenge. I'd be more than happy to do that. But a, a lot of that is people just being hiding behind the keyboard and just, you know, acting yeah. tougher than they actually are. But yeah, also, yeah. uh, and then the fact that like, okay, so I, what, my UTR is like, 8.8 let's say I'm, let's say i'm a 9 utr any tennis player that is anywhere near an 8 utr and has recorded themselves playing a tennis match they would never say that in a serious manner because they know what it's like they know what it's exactly. like how how i, I think that's generally it. like i think it's from a lack of knowledge i think it's also based i mean related to that um they did a survey in the us maybe you saw that like people think that they can take games of pro players right like regular amateurs <laughs> thought that they you know quite on a high percentage thought they could actually win a game well, or two. Well, I, I did hear about that. And Andy Roddick made a comment about that. Like that, that's literally insane or delusional. I don't know what adjective he used, but um, what, what, first of all, what's the definition of a pro tennis player, right? You, we have to define that. So is that people in the top 200 for ATP singles? I, I that's good. I don't think they define that. Yeah. Like it's maybe someone living from tennis. I would say that's a pro tennis player, right? Well, in that case, Ian Westerman would be a pro tennis player because ah, yeah, all, true, true, so, so you need like you no need to problem. define the statistic. I've 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 started to realize that as an engineer, you, you need a definition. So yeah. technically speaking, I won a five hundred dollar cash tournament. Um, it was technically open, so I'm technically a pro tennis player. I have a YouTube channel. Technically, it's a pro tennis player. But let's say it's uh, let's say it's uh, let's say ATP uh, two hundred uh, for, for men's. Um, that is one hundred percent delusional. <laughs> like you have to be like a five five rated. NTRP tennis player, or maybe even a, or I, I believe that would translate to like a 12 UTR around to even have a chance of taking a single game off these guys because they, if you leave a ball sh short twice in a row, you're dead. <laughs> it's yeah, it's exactly. completely I mean, they, they might make a mistake one or two, but they will never like give you no. four mistakes in a game, right? So it's like, People don't realize how, I mean, tennis is a game where levels are drastic, right? So yep. a 0 0.5 NTRP or a 1 UTR, whatever, that's a huge difference. In, that can be like 6-love, six 6-love six in some cases, or yep. at least 6-1, six 6-2 six or something where it's not even competitive, right? So no. people don't understand that it's like these small levels, there's so many levels to it. And if you are a 3-5 NTRP, which means like you're a pretty intermediate player, maybe you started, you know, two years ago, whatever. Yep. It's gonna be impossible to to get games against four fives, right? It's like that. That's just so hard, right? Like a three yeah. five doesn't win many games against a four five, and that's no. still like not even pro level, right? So it's uh, like... unless unless you have like a unless you're like you know a six foot six player, a really tall tennis player, and just rely on your serve, yeah, yeah. you get a game. Yeah. But that that's based on play style. But for the majority of people, yeah, a three five will never get a game off of a four five, um, if the ratings are correct. Um, that's why I like the UTR a lot better because it, it's it's more. There's a more gray area. It's not necessarily buckets. There, there's 
there's levels in between, like a ten and a nine. Yeah, so it's more granular in that sense. I think it shows more about like also. It seems like a very good uh, system UTR. Like and also they have the circuits. You know they have the UTR events. You know so prize money and stuff like that. Seems the great. issue is UTR is only uh, recognized uh, well in the United States. I don't yeah. think it's taken a hold in Europe yet. No. Um, uh, but I, you guys might have a system in Europe, but it doesn't translate well to the U.S. But it's the UTR should make a move to the to, to Europe. It would be nice. I think yeah, we need to get one international system because like if I look, I mean, NTRP is something I've used because I have a you know large American audience. I think the system is pretty decent because you can, I mean, with this you know you can actually self give yourself like a score approximately based on like yeah. the, the, the writing there, you know, could be, you know, tough to do that, but at least it's there. Uh, UTR is, is better in my opinion as well. But in, if you go to Europe, you have like different system in Italy, Spain, Switzerland, whatever. I mean, like oh, it's, it's based on country too. So it's not even yeah. like a European system. No, 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 no. There's, there are different oh, systems in each country. Okay. So like, oh, I'm a level two player in Italy. It's a completely different thing in the UK or in this, and it's like a different system. So some have 2.2, some have 10, some have... So it's like we need to put like a system that works kind of more internationally. And I think the UTR seems to be the best option that we have right now. So hopefully yes. they, will, they will get a bigger, uh, take a bigger chunk. I, I, I hope so too. And um, it, it's mainly not for the adults, but I think it's, it's, it's going to benefit once UTR system takes a hold of all of Europe. The UTR system is going to greatly benefit uh, the college recruits, like the 17, 18 year old boys and girls that want to play American tennis, right? And also, you know, just know what it's like to have an education and live in the States for four or five years. Because the first thing coaches will ask recruits, uh, college coaches will ask American uh, recruits in high school is, hey, what's your UTR? Not how well you do in, you know, your high school tennis team or how well you do in state. They ask what your UTR is, and that's a very, very accurate rep representation of whether or not it's even possible for this person to be on the tennis team or, like, not only that, but, like, where on the lineup they would play in the top six roster, if that's the case. So, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to UTR because I work with them part-time as well to see, like, what the roadmap is like if they could disclose that for getting a good hold in Europe. But also, you could benefit people like me, like, hey, I'm an 8.8 .8 UTR. What uh, master's level ITF senior circuit should I go to? Should I go M100, M200, M700? It would be a good indicator because, again, I don't want to be blown out in an M uh, master's 1000 in the first round. I don't want to lose 0-1 <laughs> to uh, someone that you know was top 200 formerly in the ATP. But I also don't want to be you know dropping only four games to win uh, an M100 or M200 uh, because I'm traveling from yeah. uh, the States to, let's say, Serbia or uh, or Spain, you know, I, I want to have a good competitive tennis match. Yeah, a good I think competitive that, tennis tournament for everyone. Yeah. Really, it's like that. Tennis is the best when it's competitive. Like no match is really that. I mean, it's fun to win, but it's like it's not that much fun to win six one six one. It's not going to no. be like a great match unless you're having the best day of your life and you're just hitting the lines and you're like smiling, you know. Yeah. yeah. But overall, it's not as satisfying as playing like a three set match. And, and winning no, that, no. for example, or even like sometimes losing a three setter, you feel a bit pissed, but you got a really good workout and you were challenged to the max, which is fantastic, right? So yeah, feel exactly. Not not only are you burning enough calories, but you know you, you guys had really good points. Um, uh, you understood that you if you split sets, that anybody could have won that day. It just didn't go your way. But also, you're kind of uh, living vicariously through the person you lost to in that round. Oh, how far can that person that I lost to in three sets go throughout the tournament? Because yeah. like 
let's say that person got to the final, well, it's not so much of a uh, a jump to say that if one or two points went your way and you won, you also would have gotten to the final because of the the result that you're seeing uh, in front of you. Very true. But you're also a gear guy. I wanted to get to that. Like you, ah. you love a lot of, of course, of course, it's oh, tennis yeah. nerd. I, I'm sometimes yeah. trying to limit the gear talk, but the, in your case, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you're big into stringing, like you string your own rackets. You have a stringing machine in the back there. Yep. Looks very nice. So you have some reels on, on the wall. Uh, so where are you with your gear right now? Like, are you, what are you, racket are you using? And uh, what string, do you have a standard string? And how's your experience testing gear been right oh, the last I, I really love testing gear, um, you know, as an engineer, you know, I like to tinker around with stuff. So uh, right now my current setup, and I don't know if you did like a review on this because you do reviews, but it's not like, how often do you pump out gear review? Is it, for me, it's about once a week. Yeah, I do try to do like once or twice a week, depending on like, it, it, it depends on my schedule. Like but now I'm doing testing Two different rackets. I'm testing the Percept rackets from Yonix. I mean, two different lines. So there's three rackets, and then Pacific rackets, and then I have some strings like the biodegradable velocity string, and I got some more Torline strings that I'm gonna test as well. So oh, there's always things going on, but I'm trying to do once or twice a week uh, gear. So okay. Torline sent me a package, um, so I, I gotta do that. It's actually right there. Uh, yeah. so, so for me, so but you're you mainly focus on rackets 75% of the time, correct? I would say, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what it's been like. But you know, I know people are very interested in strings, so you, you should do a little bit of that as well, and, and shoes as well, of course. You know, yeah, so for, for me, I'm 75% string and then 25% uh, shoes, tennis rackets, a little bit of everything else. So right now, uh, I, I was lucky enough to get um, four Yonix Ezo 98 DRs, and I love that racket. It's Yonix needs they need to they need to bring that back. So I, I got on eBay, it's obviously slightly used. I, I have four grommet sets when the grommets wear out. Um and then the string, I, I kind of came back to the string because I initially hated it on my Wilson Blades uh, 18 by 20. Um I love the Selenko Torbite. It's very, very firm, but with a, a relatively softer racket, uh and a lighter racket with a Yonix E Zone DR98, I don't have arm elbow or wrist issues it's actually fine it's stiff but it's actually fine and i could just swing out on that thing because that thing is a spin monster but you could also hit it pretty flat and it, it's still gonna go uh pretty deep and with pretty good accuracy um so you've hit with the yonix e-zone dr right yeah, yeah the dr that's one of those rackets that people like they they scour the internet like they go yeah. everywhere to find this stick and it's it's i mean a, it's a legendary racket i think that's where the kind of um the the there it is that's the yeah they, they did one in blue and that was the first generation yeah. i think that was one. and it, it, it's a beautiful frame and it plays really nicely um it's a little yeah. light it's a little it's a little light for me i, I gotta put some lead tape on it but where do you uh how much do you put like you put it at 12 or something um i would put it uh at uh at 10 10 and 2 i believe oh, yeah it's nice yeah. um because th this like it, it's and you know this is kind of a preview this is a perfect racket in any way except that it's a little bit too light and it's a little bit too whippy therefore it makes it just a little bit unstable so putting some lead tape i think would help with that i haven't done that yet because i like to review which i'll do a review on this relatively soon in stock form just because yeah. if you open the can of worms to like modification leather grip handle weight tape on the head it's just gonna be you know a 50 minute video and it's gonna take me two months to make a review on that so i always do it in stock form 
yeah, you know, you should always do that and then you can do the customization later. But it, it's, it's a brilliant racket. I think there's several pros using it in various different paint jobs and cosmetics and, and stuff like that. And it's, it has that pretty dense string bed, but it still produces some good spin. Like it yep. has pretty good spin potential. So I, I think it's very balanced. And I think that's what they got right. And and the E-Zone line after that had it's some a bit of up and down. Now <laughs> the latest E-Zone is pretty pretty good, I would say. But uh, but this one is the one where people are most interested in. I would say. Still. I'm not a fan of the latest E-Zone, both the 2022 version and the 2020, um, just because it feels like Yonix is changing the the E-Zone line into like almost like a Bablab pure drive. For me, it's 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 just way too powerful. It's way too powerful. Um, so my question is, what, what's your setup right now? I'm all over the place, as usual. But I, I use the Radical now, the latest Radical MP and Lynx Tor. That's been my, like, or, or Hawk Power. Those two strings I've, I've been playing with. But so, it, it's bond always to change. I, I use test rackets in matches yeah. as well. So that, that's just set up in the latest ITF tournament that you went yeah, to, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So your so Lynx Tour is actually pretty similar to Stalinko Tour Byte, correct? Yeah. It's like, I would say 90% the same. I don't know what the exact difference is, but they're, they're pretty similar. So my question is, why aren't you playing with this, given you know how good it actually can be, or some sort of modded uh, version of this? I, 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 right now, I don't have any. I would love to retest it, because, I mean, I tested it a bunch of years ago. Then always, like, for me, it's like I always have new sticks. So I've, I've had new prestigious now that I've been testing that's coming out in a few weeks. And then the Percept, it's a good racket, actually. The Percept, what, what happened with Yonex rackets, in my opinion, whether you like it or not, is that if you talk, look at the DR, it's very direct. You feel the feel the ball 100%, yep. right? Yep. What happened is they, they started with the VDM tech, which they put like uh, some technology in the handle, whether that's foam filling or what it is. And that takes away a little bit of the responsiveness of the frame. I mean, you can like that, you can not like that. It's maybe a bit better for comfort, but they all feel pretty muted now. All yep. the Yonex rackets, you know, so uh, that sometimes is something I struggle with, although I do like their products, but it's like sometimes like with the latest V-Core, I thought it was way too uh, muted, like, or just springy, you know, you know, when the ball just sails off and it's like a little bit hard to, you know, determine where it's going. The, the V-Core, the red racket, right? The 98? Yeah, yeah, the red ones, yeah. It, 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 it felt very flimsy and very unstable on contact when I was swinging, um, but I only had one string set up, so it could have been the string. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to tinker around with that too much. But it, it was very fast. It had pretty good spin potential. Um, but it was just way too... It wasn't light because I know the static weight is like the previous versions as well. But it just flexed in a wrong way. And it was just way too flimsy in my opinion. So I don't know if that's it's the same adjective reason. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't like it. It felt very unstable because of that. Um, but, you know, balancing, you know, having a dog now, balancing a 40-hour-a-week job, balancing being a 33-year-old single guy, still having a social life. Um, I always, I wouldn't say struggle, but I always have to discipline myself to like buckle down on a late night, write the script or edit or do something just because it is time-consuming, especially with the editing. Yeah. Um, the that's always the hardest. It's a huge, uh, people don't realize like, no. I mean, you see a video, they think it's pretty easy. I mean, no. it's not that hard from a technical point of view unless you're like, you know, cult tennis, which is super pro at doing this stuff. Yep, yep. But even doing like pretty basic stuff is very time consuming because you want to get it right. Like it's it's your video. You want to make sure that the right points come across. And and there's like an ownership of that, you know, but it's also like time consuming in terms of you rewatching it. You're moving things around. You're, you know, you're highlighting your clips, whether that's match play or, or points play, or whatever. It, it takes time, you know? Yeah. 
it's it's about um other than playing tennis because that's what i already do when it comes to pumping out a video that's a review editing is 75 percent of the time of, yeah. of of the stuff that you guys see in the background so unless you guys are like uh a, a media uh undergrad or you have your own youtube channel or you edit videos for fun pe normal people do not understand how hard um how time consuming editing is <laughs> Did you think about uh, like getting a freelancer or something to send the stuff to? It's not worth it. Um, I'm only making, unless a, a video like you know does really really well, I'm only making like ten to twenty dollars a video on ads, so yeah. it, it doesn't make no, any they're sense. They're not paying like that well. YouTube people should no. know that as well. Like unless you're a really big YouTuber, tennis is a pretty small niche. So it's not that easy to make huge amounts of money these days. Right? Well, it's nice for you, right? Tennis is a small niche and, you know, specifically tennis equipment, you know, kind of like what you and I are doing, but obviously yeah. you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. It's easier to break into. It's a lot easier to break into yeah. rather than something as general as video game or fashion or cooking. Um, but yeah, uh, for those of you guys out there that want to like break into the YouTube space or the YouTube tennis space, you cannot make a decent living off of YouTube ad monetization. You have to sell something that you own, whether it's T-shirts, online courses, or maybe even some blog posts yeah. that uh, you hide behind a paywall. That's how you make money. YouTube, the videos you guys see on YouTube, that's just a front. That's just purely 100% marketing. I mean, look at Ian, for example. His essential tennis and real tennis, that's just a front for his private clinics. And that's where most of the money is made for him. Yeah, I think that's good. Good to keep in keep in mind. I think I mean for a guy like Felix from Tennis Brothers, who blew up, right? Like he's crazy, he's crazy views and, well. and doing really well. I think for him, you know, it, it adds a nice chunk of cash for him to travel and play ITFs and and futures and and stuff. Well, uh, but for most people with more you know normal followerships and views, it it's it's uh, tougher. It's more, well, more of a marketing thing or more for fun. Right? Well, whether or not um, Felix from. Uh... Tennis Brothers, uh, whether or not he actually gets an IT or a ATP singles point, it yeah. actually doesn't. Oh, he did. Yeah, singles like last week. Yeah, yeah. I think it was okay. last week. Let's retract that. So whether yeah. or not he he got one, and good for him, and he he's improved dramatically. Because yeah. I remember watching his videos before he even hit like twenty k subs. I'm like, oh, I, I think I could take this guy. And now I'm seeing him. Now I'm like, holy shit, this guy's a monster. Like he, he just goes after it. And he's what six foot one. He's like a perfect tennis build for a male singles yeah. player, right? He's he's lean. He's got muscle. He moves really well. He's tall, a little bit lanky. But um, whether or not he actually did get an ATP point, which he did, so congrats, uh, Felix. He's already done stuff that not even people in the top one hundred can can physically do, and that's to make a profit, a profit of becoming a professional tennis player. Not in terms of prize money. But his ad monetization is probably really, really good right now, right? And also the stuff that he does behind is it is it Patreon? Is that what he uses, or something? Which is like Fantium, which is like he has um, these sponsorships. You can so you you can actually buy like a part of his revenue pool, right? From not from the YouTube, I think, but yeah, from or whatever. So, so he's think, he's his own company then. He's he's basically a public like, company. I mean, he's, he's a young, smart uh, business guy in you know sense. He paired with a tennis player, so he has a great yeah. future ahead of him. Even if tennis doesn't work out, like he can do YouTube channels, other YouTube channels, he can do something else. Like I think yeah. uh, he has a good setup now for the rest what of his he, life. 18 or 19, maybe 20? I mean, he's very he mature. Made... He's yeah. very mature. I mean, the, yeah. the idea of not only training to become a professional tennis player or the journey of being a professional tennis player, but editing, traveling, like not partying. Like I, I would have partied in his age, like being 20 years Same. old and being, yeah, I mean, 
he's a very, very mature guy. And that maturity, whether or not he gets, let's say, into the top 100, well, that's a whole different story. That's the next step of his journey, I hope. Just, just the discipline of setting a goal, holding yourself accountable, making YouTube content and profiting off of it and also making a company or two out of it and, you know, having it be, you know, a good company from what I would speculate. Yeah. He, he's got a very bright future ahead of him. It's not even yeah. about tennis at this point. It's about can he keep doing what he's doing with his 150,000 subs? What is he going to do with all that power? What is he going to do with all that influence? And hopefully it's going to be for the good rather than the bad. But I think he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's going to do well, whatever he does. And I think it's good because he brings a new audience to tennis. So I think yep. a lot of people just see this as a more, you know, I watch other YouTubers outside tennis because I, I mean, I like YouTube as a format. I think it's pretty good. Like it's, it's short videos. You can get some new ideas. You get some fresh stuff. Some of it's silly. Like if I fill my pool with tennis, what happens? You know, this stuff I, I'm not super into, uh, but you he gets a different type of audience than someone who goes to tennis TV and sees like highlights from the latest Chengdu ATP uh, yep, yep. final, right? So it's like that that he reaches that different demographic with tennis tennis needs that badly. So I think that's great that he that we're finding new people to watch tennis or be interested in about tennis. And also, uh, I, I, okay, so you have you have the YouTube Studio Analytics, but I've noticed that uh, I'm a, uh, I would say seventy five percent of my audience is between the ages of nineteen and I think forty. So I think what he does really well, and this is just happenstance, it's not that he meant to do it, that I believe, I, I do want to see his YouTube studio demographics, but I believe he brings in that younger audience of people that are, let's say, 13 to 19, of people that are aspiring to play high-level college American tennis. I'm pretty sure he brings that in. Or people that yeah. tr want to try to go pro. So exactly. he, he's, 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 in my opinion, he's not only what YouTube tennis needs, but he's actually good for YouTube tennis. He's a, he's a positive force where me, and I'm more than willing to admit this, uh, my, my personality on camera, with not, not this type of camera, but like if I'm playing a tennis tournament or a tennis match on real tennis, I'm very toxic. Not to the point of disrespect, but like I'm toxic where I have outbursts. I'm very, very uh, self-critical. I swear, I yell at myself a lot, but it's never to the detriment or to the disrespect of my opponent. But it's a more of like kind of like a Nick Kyrgios kind of personality that I have when I'm playing a tennis match. Obviously not to the same level, but definitely like a, a fresh face of like, oh, these this 33-year-old is playing this 28-year-old. Okay, it's going to be a respectful tennis match. Uh, it's going to be a quiet tennis match. No, it's not. There's going to be a lot of screaming and yelling. So um, that type of personality and flavor is kind of like what he has, but more on a, a professional and not so much screaming like an idiot type of uh, type of flavor. So he'll yeah, he uh, seems pretty level-headed, right? Like if, if from in your, like do you do you add extra spice because there's cameras, or you act like that also when you're playing like a non-camera match, for example, like if you're playing a tournament or something? Um, tournament, no, I, I wouldn't do that because um, a typical tournament setting, uh, especially especially if it's indoors, you're going to start to to disturb the people you know ne ne next to you, especially in indoor tennis tournament. So um, let, let's take into let, let's take an example of. Uh, let's let's say real tennis, right? So those negative thoughts th with those outbursts, they always occur in my head because I'm naturally a negative person. So it's it's here in the back of my head. But when I'm playing a tennis match on real tennis, specifically with someone that I know and that is a good friend, so they know they shouldn't take it personally, I let those thoughts go out. I don't have a filter. I just let it out. Mainly because it's a little bit entertaining. I get it. But also having like these outbursts, like it's kind of like a, 
not only is it partially comedy, which which it is, but it's also like uh, a nice healthy release. Of, I'd rather scream at the top of my lungs because I dump a forehand in the middle of the net on an approach shot, which happens more so than I care to admit. But I'd rather do that than smash a tennis racket, or I'd rather do that than um, launch a ball, it, it, you know, into the street because uh, it's right next to a major major street. So it's a it's a least negative way of having an outburst i would say <laughs> rather than just keeping it bottled inside so it, it is a little bit flavor a little bit of extra spice but that's that's the reasoning why yeah i noticed i think most people notice that like i'm a pretty calm guy generally but on the i mean everybody on the tennis court they can you can have two personalities in life you can yep. be very calm you go on a tennis court there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of self-hate or or self-love well, depending on, on how it's going <laughs> maybe but it's like there you have to kind of let out a bit more if you're constantly quiet even when things are going against you i think it's pretty easy to be uh roger federer when things are going well like you're just oh my forehand is flowing you can be completely quiet you don't need to do any outburst yeah. anything but as soon as things starting to bottle up and you're starting to get more and more aggravated then you sometimes need a release valve right like you need yeah. okay i need to let this shit out like whether you throw the racket or you scream or you I mean, hopefully do something sensible, right? But it's, yeah. I, I completely understand that type of, of uh, release, right? Well, even back then, not a lot of people realize this, um, especially if they just started watching professional tennis recently or, you know, within the past five years. But Roger Federer had massive tantrum issues as juniors. Like, he would throw rackets. He would destroy the tarps inside uh, behind behind the tennis baseline. Federer did not really mentally mature until, I was I would say, around like 22, 23. Like yeah. he, he's not he's not a Carlos Alcaraz. Alcaraz won his first Grand Slam at nineteen. He was a teenager. Federer yeah. didn't win his first Wimbledon until he was what twenty three, twenty four. By most yeah, exactly. standards, by most standards, Federer is a late bloomer, both physically and mentally. People don't understand that. No, and I think it's good to read. The, I read the the Federer biography. I had Christopher Clary on the podcast. It's a very good book. And it talks a lot about that, like he, his work with a mental coach pretty early on because he had that problem, right? He was yeah. very hard on himself, quite nasty uh, in a way when he was losing, you know, it wasn't really like doing that well. And then he became this stoic Bjorn Borg-like mm -hmm. guy that people got to know him for. Like people who knew him before that phase, they know that he used to snap and the racket used to fly across the court sometimes and it wasn't so pretty. And then he just, that's the most impressive part, I think, that he just found a way to deal with that i don't know how he yeah. did it but it's, it's like one of those questions i would ask him like it's like how how hard was that that, that process must have been hard because it's not really him you know than if he's, no. he was acting like that before right no it's amazing too but like uh there's also something to be said with someone like a nick curios or even a little bit of older generation and this 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 individual i would argue I don't have any objective evidence for this, but I think uh, this individual is even more talented than Federer, and I would argue the most talented male tennis player of all time. I loved watching Marat Safin because he could just have an outburst. At it. it's, it's not the fact that he's six foot four and hits the living shit out of the ball. I would argue the best two-handed backhand ever to play yeah. the game, but like, he's just such a natural athlete, moves so well, strikes the ball so well, but at any time... If he gets broken or if he hits uh, a forehand in the middle of the net or sails it long, there's that slight chance that he's just going to go to town with his tennis racket. <laughs> yeah. And, it also and helps he's a like, very charismatic guy. He's a very, very charismatic guy to talk to, apparently. Yeah, you know, he's, so. a, he's a, I mean, uh, he's in Marbella. He's been here, played with a friend of mine, Andre Kuznetsov. Oh, we talked about so that. So you've seen him in person? 
No, I haven't seen him in person. He's just been here. And then, like, I, oh, I asked okay, okay. Andre, like, next time he comes and you, you practice with him, you have to message me because I have to yeah. see this live, right? Like, I really want to see it live because he's also one of my favorites, right? Yeah. The way he just charismatic, you said it, but also his ball striking is poetically. I mean, it's poetic. It, it's just so clean. And he uses oh small head sizes, the 90 square inch still, right? Like, he still hits the crazy amount of pace on the ball, right? And he's he's strong with Luxalon, big banger, like what, 65 pounds? He's running pretty high, yeah. We have one of his rackets in the, the office. Nikki has one of those, uh, one of his old rackets that still live to tell the tale, right? <laughs> and uh, very few. I think he broke like close to 1,400 rackets. I think someone measured yeah. like, and I heard it's that like, that, too. that's an insane amount of rackets. I think Nick almost, I think Nick was almost like, I have to try to beat that, but it's, there's no yeah. chance, man. He's not going to beat that. So let's see. So he used, uh, is it 90 square inches or 89.5? 89.5, yes. Okay, still, so rounding up. Yeah. 18 by 20. Yeah. And he somehow could get top spin off that and still could hit a really good kick yeah, serve. It's crazy, yeah, crazy. Then you have pretty good technique. Like that's pretty good uh, level. He's he's there. a big dude too. Like it, uh, was one of the one of my favorite videos to watch him warming up is uh or hitting training session is in Indian Wells. And he, yeah, he, 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 he's he's a big guy, right? But like him holding with a two-handed backhand with a 90 square inch racket, he looks like an even bigger guy just because of the relative size where everyone has a 100 square inch racket nowadays. So I, I just don't understand how he didn't get injured more often in terms of like his elbow and his shoulder, but also like just how much he could, I mean, he wasn't really known for, you know, heavy topspin, but he could still hit topspin and hit the living crap out of it. So that just surprises me. The, yeah. They're just no, not it's like, like I think anymore. Sometimes you have to give some, um, it's like credit to the legends. Like you for, it's easy to forget tennis moves on now. Alcaraz is amazing to watch, you know, uh, Djokovic still winning grand slams uh, left, right. Uh, but but it's like these older guys. Like I used, I grew up watching Stefan Edberg. Still like fun to watch that serving volley style. I loved Safin watching him just take the ball early, you know. And he was he did his talent maybe not a hundred percent justice, even though he won I think two slams, yeah. Because he had that temper, you know. But it, it, it's in him, right? So he can't do. Maybe he could have gone to a you know some kind of <laughs> therapist or something. He could have done something about it and, and won more slams. But but it's still. You know, interesting. It's just like it just shows the the human nature, right? A little bit more. You know, it's it's, it's he was more of a human a legend, and then the, these guys were winning twenty grand slams, which is completely insane in a sport like that. Well, imagine winning. First of all, imagine like as a mortal just being able to qualify for a grand slam. Imagine yeah. winning a grand slam, and imagine doing that twenty to twenty four more times. It's it's unreal, and that's one of the things where like you know, not to get into conspiracy, but there is there is uh, an incentive for these top three guys, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, to be doping without them being properly tested or called out because it's part of the sport. Um, and I, I know doping in, in Europe in terms of across different sports is, is a lot more common than it is in the States. But it's just like, how do these guys do it day in and day out? How is Nadal even able to walk at age 36 or 37? How is Djokovic able to win grand slams left and right against these, you know, 22 year olds that are just absolutely hungry to take him down it, it, it's scary how good these guys are even at that age yeah it, it, is, it is absolutely crazy like i watched part of the the latest final and you know i do like i looking at the match i was like okay medvedev's playing as good as i've seen him play like he's playing amazing tennis he moves like someone who's not two meters and he's still two meters and can hit that two meter serve but Still, like you know, you feel like when it gets down to the crunch time, you know, it's Djokovic is is just too mentally strong. He always finds that kind of key to 
you know, unlock the riddle against him, you know. Uh, sometimes he's failed, but it, it's just like, it's almost you, you, demotivating to watch. You know it's going to happen, you know. It's like, it's he's too good. I don't know. Yeah, he's too good. Uh, shocking. Shocking and impressive in, at the same time. Like, do you have any favorite players you that you kind of idolized growing up or that you like to watch now more than other players? Uh, Federer, obviously, is always going to be a top one. Um, I, I have a lot more respect for Nadal now, um, especially after I came from his academy. And have you have you been there, the Rafa Nadal? Yeah, yeah, my room, yeah, it's not as expensive as I thought it would be, mainly because of the Iberia voucher uh, from the states. I think it was twelve hundred euro that they gave me uh, to fly Iberia. But just the idea that, keep in mind, Tony Nadal and Rafa Nadal didn't need to have their own academy, right? They they could have jacked up the price and did it all for the money. But from what I could tell. It's fairly reasonably priced, and it's really nice that it's in in his home island of Mallorca, which is yeah. fantastic. At least the headquarters, because they they do have one in in Mex somewhere in Me Mexico. Um, but the idea that he actually trains there, if he doesn't retire yet, Tony Nadal there, Tony Nadal is there coaching uh, some of these juniors. They don't need to do that, but they they still choose to do that. Like it's insane. You 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 see Rafa Nadal just walking around on the grounds. You you see Nadal, you know, warming up on the treadmill that other people can publicly use. He doesn't need to do that, but he does, and it's he's he's a very very uh, he's a very introverted and a very humble guy, uh, from from what I could tell. Um, let's say other tennis players aren't like that. <laughs> but, no, no, no. He's he's a. Uh, I mean, it's also I was also a Fed fan, you know, coming back to tennis during his kind of era, and then Rafa took some time getting into, but then then you cannot not respect that guy, and also yeah. that the the humility and or the like the. The way he acts. Uh, also, I mean, I'm, I'm met Tony a few times. I played doubles with Tony. And, really, uh, super nice guy. Yeah, I oh. got to talk tennis with him afterwards and stuff like that. So he's a very smart guy. I understand how he could bring his knowledge into Rafa. Rafa is I met also a few times, but he's a bit more shy. You know, obviously, if your Spanish is not fantastic, it's easy tough to to talk uh, properly. Oh. But very nice. How is yeah. your span? How is your Spanish now that you live in Spain? It's it's getting better. Like it's I understand quite a bit, but it's like I'm I mean I need to I'm practicing as much as I can to speak you know freely. But it's like there's a lot of where I live in Marbella, it's quite international, so you can easily really get okay. okay with English, right? So it's that's that's the way you you have to kind of force yourself to practice a bit more. I'm in the south of Spain, right? So uh, a lot of, lot of um you know people from any everywhere here, right? Like it's uh it's a place that attracts a lot of international people i mean novak is here so i mean i see novak if i go to certain clubs right i know his brother personally so it's really yeah Marbella? i thought i thought uh i thought they lived in monaco in monte carlo no no he moved i mean he bought a house there i think he's here most of the time and he i mean he plays football sometimes with my friends right so joins football games very chill i i joined his practice a few times watched his practice up close you know uh his brother is really nice guy as well like yeah so it's it's um yeah I also know his coach, Carlos. So it's it's like a, it's a little small tennis knit group here in, in south of Spain. It's quite nice. So uh, they don't speak Catalan because that's north. That's more on the northern part of Spain. Yeah, except when we're Barcelona and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Obviously, I'm looking. I'm Google mapping this because I'm an American. I don't know European ge ge geography fa fairly well. But um, when I went to Spain, I was actually shocked how very few people spoke basic English. Yeah. Only twenty five percent of people. Could like I could carry a conversation to, and um, English is technically my second language. I know I know Filipino because my parents are from the Philippines, so I actually made uh, a concerted effort to start trying to learn Spanish using um, this app called Babbel to yeah. start uh, understanding basic phrases. So I, I always try to do that like uh, two hours, two hours a week, just to kind of get going. But I, th I think 
Spanish is the most spoken language in, in all of Europe. So that will help me no, no matter where I'm at. Yeah, so it's good. I mean, Latin Americans as well, stuff like that. So it's actually... What's, what's your native language? Swedish. Swedish. Okay. Welcome. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Swedish and I live in Malta. So I speak some Maltese, which is kind of close to Arabic uh, slash Italian. And then yeah. I have German. My grandmother was German. So I speak some German and then I have the Spanish now. And besides that, obviously English, but... So when you grew up in Sweden, you said, right? Yeah. So you, so all Sweden, all people from Sweden, they, they all speak good English, right? That's part of your schooling. I would say, yeah, I mean, compared to other countries, pretty high on the the list because like we never had, I mean, the problem I, they have in Spain and in Germany and some other places, maybe Italy as well, uh, France is that they dub everything, right? So you watch an English TV show or an American show in most cases, right? It's, they have dubbing. So they, yeah. the voices, they put another line, which I think is a horrible idea because it ruins the creative uh, idea because the voice is different, obviously. Yep. It looks complete shit. Uh, people will maybe be angry with me, but this is my opinion. <laughs> uh, and, and in, in Sweden, we always had like just subtitles, right? So you, you, you listen to the English and then you have the Swedish subtitles, which is pretty much an English lesson, right? So, so sub, subbing. That's that was yeah, as we call it, right? So, yeah. so the thing is, like, then you you hear the English, you see the Swedish, and you connect. Okay. So even like older people can speak decent English in Sweden, right? Because like they have that, and then we study English in school from like fourth grade, so it's, it's like mandatory. So, or oh, it is mandatory. Right? It's not. It's not yeah, a choice. Under hundred percent mandatory. Yeah, it's no, that's good. Because... Yeah. So, so when you have dreams, right? When you're dreaming about tennis, when you're sleeping, you're dreaming. What language is it typically in? Because that's a telltale. Yeah, it's kind of English these days, I think. Really? So English yeah. is your primary then? It's almost say. become that. I, I'm, I'm thinking about it sometimes. But yeah, I think a lot. I, I think sometimes like the English comes more naturally than Swedish. Like I, I don't go to Sweden that often, right? So it's like I lived 15 years in Malta, 16 maybe here. And I lived in the States a few years before two years. And so it's been like I've been abroad for most of my adult life right so it's been yeah. multi english as well so i think that that makes a difference you know? even oh, like so i have a swedish friend here and we go to lunch uh he's been living in spain for 20 years i don't know we speak english nice uh is is uh the, but i i did hear from and also with the internationals that i've dealt with in college um that germany has the best english speaking um let's say culture in terms of Europe, is that true, or do you think Sweden is still the best? I would say the Nordic countries probably better. I wouldn't say like because if I travel around Germany and being like you know I'm part German and and I know German, I feel like sometimes in Germany you it's tough with the English, right? So it's yeah. I, I would say it's easier in the Nordic country. I mean, a smaller country you need to rely more on a international language. If you're a big country like Germany, big economy and stuff like Germany is stronger. The, the language, the currency, everything was yeah. stronger back then, right? So. I think that makes a lot of sense and i understand like the french they don't want to learn other languages the spanish maybe not so keen on english because it's kind of a big culture big language big country right so the worst from what my experience though is people that grew up in the united kingdom have the le the le they have they don't understand other if, if you're born in the uk you're less pressured to learn another language of that's course. what i meant to say i notice that all the time yeah, yeah. like there's a lot of english people here and they're not obviously so incentivized or interested in learning other languages because they feel like we know the number one language. I yeah. Mean, same with Americans, right? It's like, we know the number one language. Why should we, you know, put a lot of effort into learning other languages? English should work everywhere. Yeah. I, I get it. You know, I get it. Yeah, it's not... uh, I, I want to correct you, though. Um, in, in terms of Americans learning only English, that's true if you're in the northern part of America. If you're in Florida, especially like South, South Florida or Spanish. even Texas, you have to learn Spanish at least to a basic, uh, to 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 a basic, uh, 
competency just because of uh the uh, there's a lot of people from mexico that live in the southern parts of uh southern parts of of the u.s which is good pretty, yeah which pretty is big latino influence in general right like very very big, very big and whatnot right so very big and it's amazing that in uh in in college tennis now the especially the higher level college tennis like division one or naia um it's not english that's spoken on the court it's spanish oh, yeah just because of South America and the people from Europe um, understanding Spanish and they come to the States. So they speak Spanish with each other. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. Right? Yeah. 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 When I, I lived in the States, I lived in Washington, DC. I didn't notice that much of a Spanish. I mean, some, but people well, it's Washington, DC. So yeah. it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit north. But yeah. It's it, quite north. So, it, yeah. And also it's very, I mean, it's kind of a specific city in many ways. Right. So, uh, but, but it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's always good to learn new languages. Like it's a superpower. When you meet people who know like four or five languages, you, I'm always super impressed. Like it's like yeah. it's such a cool thing to know and to be able to communicate with people in different languages. It's a, yeah. it's a cool skill. Well, DC, when were you in DC? What years? Oh, one, oh, two. So was, was it still pretty expensive back then? Because it's one of the yeah. most expensive yeah, it cities. It was very expensive. Yeah. Also, it was humid during the summer too. That's yeah, what I recall. Yeah, it's pretty pretty rough uh, tennis uh, climate there. Like it's very humid, and uh, summer is, is is hot. I mean, it's, Malta is the same. It's very humid, quite hot. I mean, DC is built on a swamp, as far as I know. So it's like it's uh, it's kind of like a, that kind of really heavy air, right? It's yeah. tough to play tennis in. Uh, I like here, it because it slows down the ball. Uh, it slows right? down the ball. Well, you're next to the ocean now in Marbella, so it's good. Yeah, it's good. good. We have a good tennis vibe here. I, I can recommend people who are into tennis. I mean, there are other places in Spain with with more academies, if you're really into going to an academy and stuff like Barcelona is pretty good, like Alicante, you know, that area. Um, but it's nice here. Like it's a many nice things here about yeah. tennis. And that's probably why, like, and you have a lot of pros practicing here in, in, uh, during the year, like we have Shapo coming here all the time. They have a place, uh, Shapo Balov, and then we have Novak living here and, uh, and many other players coming for off season. And during the off season, you will see a lot of players come here. Like you will, you can just go down to some club and you will, bump into some ATP pros or a WTA pros. Marbella is not that big, is it? No, 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 no. Yeah, it's, it looks small. 50,000, but it's like a part of uh, Costa del Sol, like the, the Sun Coast. Yeah. And that's all connected. And then like Malaga is like half a million people. So that's a city connected that's to the city. Like, okay. Yeah, that's 45 the... minutes away. That's where the airport is and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got to, looks like I got to swing by Marbella one of these days. Yeah, do it. Play some tennis, do some yeah. videos. It'll be fun. I always well, encourage people to to show up. At, I mean, I know it's the hike from the States, but uh, if, right. if you're going to Europe, it's not a bad place. Yeah. Especially for tennis related stuff. That'd be good. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you and I should play a tennis match recording. Yeah, we should. We should. Yeah. All right. My ass. Well, I got to <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. I, I got to get going because uh, of work stuff, but uh, definitely thank you. Um, join us for everything and uh, we'll keep in touch with email and then we'll see when I can go to Marbella. It'll be fun. For sure, man. I really enjoyed talking to you and like your stuff. Good luck with all your tennis and software development and all that stuff and yep. we, we keep in touch all right happy hitting same man